So welcome everybody. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Thank you for setting aside a little bit of your Thursday evening to be with us. For those of you who don't know the Library Company, we were founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731, and we changed a bit over the past 300 odd years. Uh, we're now a research library. We serve all sorts of fantastic scholars, whether they're independent researchers, tenured faculty, research fellows. We have all sorts of interesting folks that come through our doors. Early on in the pandemic, I started this program, our Fireside Chats webinar series, as a platform uh, for those researchers to help us sustain our community while uh, we're you know, going through this weird, difficult period. Really a place where we could continue to share ideas, research that's inspired by library company collections and conversations with staff and curators to maintain that connection across the distance. Um, so I'm very grateful for everyone who's allowed us to do this including our speaker tonight. Carol Adrienne is the, is the writer producer of a four-part documentary series in production, Civil War Medicine. The series is drawn from primary source materials, including letters, diaries, periodicals, and memorabilia from more than 40 American libraries, archives, museums, and private collections. Her fiscal sponsor is the Greater Philadelphia Film Office. Carol is the host of Student Docs, an international program presenting social justice and social issue documentaries by students from schools, including Villanova University and Rowan University. It airs on MLTV mainline network and will be airing on PhillyCam this fall. She's a frequent lecturer at libraries and museums presenting a multimedia program called Civil War Medicine, What Went Right? Carol is also currently working on a book proposal about the topic with a literary agent in New York. Carol, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Will, and thank you everyone for coming tonight. I wish we could see each other, but I feel your energy and I'm grateful for it. I'm so sorry about this glitch. I will try to be as verbally visual as possible because we really do have a wonderful slide presentation, which you'll be able to see next week, I think. But one way or another, it's a terrific honor for me at library company, even virtually, this organization is particularly meaningful to me, which we'll talk about. When Dr. Fenton first contacted me, he asked me to give a program about, and I quote, the unusual ways I have chosen to do humanities scholarship, which phrase I love. So some of you may have seen my lecture, Civil War Medicine, What Went Right, but today I am going to talk about what goes into this kind of use of humanities scholarship in producing a four-part documentary series and all of the other projects that have branched off from that as well. So welcome to Fireside Chat, the acoustic version. And let's start with how I found this story. I was, I found out an interesting fact, which is that Philadelphia has more Civil War statuary than any city in the country. And that includes Gettysburg, Manassas, Antietam, Philadelphia is loaded with Civil War memorials and statues. And I wondered why. Just to give you an example of some of them, which you'll see next week, the Smith Memorial Arch, which is the west entrance to Fairmount Park, an extremely large municipal park in Philadelphia. These colossal structures on either side of the road are 30 feet long and the pillars go 54 feet in the air. So upon them are 13 portrait sculptures 
The whole thing is covered, eagles on globes, bas-reliefs. It is one impressive entrance. We also have on the parkway in Philadelphia, the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial. Now these are marble obelisks which shoot 40 feet in the air. They're on granite bases. One is devoted to the soldiers, one to the sailors. They frame the west view of the city towards the art museum. And they are just a beautiful entrance to Philadelphia. We have lots of amazing equestrian statuary, which are some of my favorites. And you'll see when you get the visuals, um, Major General John Fulton Reynolds on a beautiful horse on the east side of City Hall, which incidentally has more sculpture on it than any building in the country. City Hall is really amazing. And just the last is one of my favorites, a General Galusha Pennypacker. Uh, General Pennypacker was unique in that he is believed to be the youngest Union general in the Civil War. He was 20 years old and too young to vote for the president that he served. So uh, General Pennypacker's statue is just off Logan Circle in front of the main library and family court. He is depicted in a, uh, the traditional Beaux-Arts fashion, and he is accompanied by guns and tigers, wherever we've heard that before. And he is, I have not been able to ascertain with certainty that in real life, the general was as ripped as he appears in this depiction, but it's quite impressive. Uh, so I wondered why do we have all this statuary in a city that did not host any Civil War battles? So my next stop was the Foundation Center at the main library on Vine Street. It has recently morphed into a most wonderful resource called Brick the Business Resource Innovation Center. And for anybody who is searching grants, who wants to know about trademarks, patents, building businesses, this is just an incredible resource. So I searched Philadelphia Civil War, and what came up was an astonishing story. During the Civil War, Philadelphia was the center of medicine in America. It, for a lot of reasons, um, most of the doctors north and south went to school here at University of Pennsylvania or the Jefferson Medical College, as it was known then. It is uh, the two largest military hospitals in the north, Maurer and Satterley, were in Philadelphia. And this is where neurology was first isolated as a specific area of medicine and study. So there are a lot of firsts. So it was an irresistible story for me, uh, considering that I'm a filmmaker. So my next stop was at another fantastic Philadelphia organization, the Greater Philadelphia Film Office, GPFO. And the Film Office has two main functions. One, uh, it has brought almost $6 billion into the city because it brings in Hollywood feature films, episodic television, commercials, lots of stuff is shot in Philadelphia, and the film office makes that possible. The other division of the film office is the filmmakers division, which supports independent filmmakers like myself in a fantastic fashion. There have been workshops and counseling and all kinds of introductory activities that have made me a better filmmaker. 
and they also serve as a fiscal sponsor. So an NDE like me can apply for grant funding through GPFO, the film office. They are a 501c3 foundation, so they can accept foundation funding. So this has made it possible for me to get quite a few grants, which took us through pre-production, which included the research and the writing of the four one-hour scripts. The next thing I want to tell you, I have a, a list here. There have been about 40 institutions, very generous and gracious institutions, from the American Dental Association through the Biomedical Library of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which have given me information, text, images, all dealing with this subject. It was quite a research uh, issue to go through. I also have, and you'll see this next year, hopefully, when you see the series, um, at least 300 names of individuals, librarians, archivists, curators, collectors, who have been amazingly generous with their information and in introducing me to different aspects of the story. Just incredibly brilliant people. So the next thing I had to do was create a proposal. And this is one heck of a document if you've ever done a grant proposal. Um, so now every they're really all digital over the last several years, but originally I had these 50 to 70 page documents, which I would have spiral bound to send to the foundations. But it's a great way that forces you to know exactly what it is you want to do and exactly how you're going to do it and who you are going to call upon to help you do it. So a proposal is a really, really important document. One of my first stops when I started with the research was a quiet building on Locust Street eight stories of amazing resources, the Library Company of Philadelphia. And this really was a building block of my research. And actually not just for Civil War medicine, for literally two decades, I have been assisted by the amazing people at Library Company uh, for other documentaries, for lectures, for articles. Um, I wanna give a shout out to a couple people. Cornelia King, who was chief of reference and curator of women's history, introduced me and gave me perspective on volunteerism, on the emergence of women into really a much more public situation. Um, she just taught me so much. And, and also, we forget that not everything is digitized. There are plenty of elderly volumes full of material that have not been digitized and you really need an expert like Connie King to point them out to you. So she has been so such an amazing part of the Civil War medicine process, as has Sarah Weatherwax, who is the senior curator of graphic arts. And I'm going to talk more in a little bit about the visuals that Sarah has introduced me to and provided for my projects. And one more, I really must thank Dr. John Van Horn, who allowed and encouraged a slightly unusual and somewhat noisy researcher to take advantage of the wonderful facilities at Library Company for 20 years. <laughs> thank you, John. Um, 
one of the things you'll see when you see the eventual slideshow, these, some of these materials, it was, it was my intention to work only with primary source materials. I did not watch Ken Burns series. I didn't see Cold Mountain. I avoided any kind of contemporary presentation because I wanted the primary source materials to tell me the story in the voices of the people who lived through it. So one of the terrific things that I use that are really give a picture, at the time of the Civil War, there were two weekly tabloid newspapers that in the North, Frank Leslie's Illustrated and Harper's Weekly. And these were about the size of, of the New York Post or the Philadelphia Daily News. And library company has bound volumes each uh, one year in each binding. So when you see this, uh, they're so fragile. When you handle some of this stuff, it literally powders in your fingers the edges of the pages. You have to turn them in a very specific way. And you can't just open these volumes and have them flat because the bindings are fragile as well. So there are um, all different sizes of foam pieces with which one um, supports the volume while you're using it. But in these volumes are amazing depictions. You have to remember that photography was very new. It was not exactly in its infancy, kind of more in its toddlerhood, but uh, there are no action shots. There's plenty of photography from the Civil War, but no candidates. So there are lots of portraits, there are still lifes, lots of corpses and dead horses, but anything not moving. So these newspapers hired artists that they sent to the battlefields. Lots of American artists and quite a few Europeans. So they went and they, their depictions gave Americans the tragedy, the pathos, the drama that was going on on the actual battlefields in a way that photography was not able to do at that point in time. I, and going through, I have been through, I guess, well, eight volumes. So four of Frank Leslie's and four of Harper's. Uh, and every once in a while, I come upon something that just charms me. In this case, it's a photograph of a general on a horse. And that general was actually General Lew Wallace, who after the war would go on to write the epic novel Ben-Hur, which then was made into the epic movie Ben-Hur, but it was pretty cool. So another place where I've done a lot of research is the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. It is part of the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, about an hour outside of Philadelphia. And this is a beautiful new facility. And interestingly, their holdings include the largest collection of Civil War photographs in the world. I thought it was going to be Library of Congress, but it isn't. It's, as they call it, AHEC. And they just have such wonderful user-friendly uh, availability for people. So they have actually six uh, workstations set up with copy stands and lights. So you can bring your camera and you can photograph anything in the holdings uh, right there without charge. If you need scans, that's something they'll have to do for you, and they, and they do have a fee, but um, you can photograph so many of these rare things. 
So while we were AHEC, <laughs> before COVID-19 hit, I've been working on a particular photograph collection that was assembled by Mollus, the military order of the Loyal Legion of the United States. And after the war, they made it their business to collect as many of the Civil War photographs as possible. So there were thousands of them. So what AHEC did, interestingly, was made them accessible to researchers like myself. They photocopied all of these photographs and then they store them because they have to be kept in humidity and climate controlled conditions. They took the photocopies, put them in double-sided acid-free plastic sheets in three ring binders. And I believe it's 147 of these binders and each one has 50 of these double-sided sheets. So you can sit down and leaf through these photographs, which is wonderful. Unfortunately, they're not indexed. So my assistant and I have been on several trips. And as we go through them looking for photographs relevant to the Civil War Medicine Project, we make notes about what kinds of subjects are covered in each volume. Some are portraits of generals, portraits of women, portraits of battlefields, Gettysburg, um, so that when we're finished, we'll have a, a finding aid that we can give AHEC for future researchers. And you'll see, I, I've included a slide showing like what one of these looks like open. Another amazing resource has been the Thomas Jefferson University Archives and Special Collections. And the curator of this is archivist F. Michael Angelo, who has just been a font of amazing knowledge and humor for a long time with these projects and they have a, a staggering and beautiful collection I, I really i have seen things at, at jefferson that just they're so moving um they've got a set of of a, a package like a backpack that would go onto the battlefield with tiny little glass bottles with all the various uh medicines in them um anyway jefferson Thank you so much. You guys have been amazing. Also, interestingly, Jefferson educated both of the medical directors of the Confederacy and the Union, Dr. Jonathan Letterman uh, of the Union and Dr. Hunter McGuire of the Confederacy. Now, I believe that Dr. McGuire finished up his medical education in the South after the war. But a lot of people were pulled into this sometimes with one year of lectures and that was it. Boom, you're a surgeon. Uh, the Mutter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia has always been wonderful. The previous director, uh, the late Gretchen Worden, who was became a good friend of mine, um, introduced me to all kinds of wonderful stuff. And her successor, Dr. Robert Hicks, really has expanded my understanding and view of Civil War medicine, for which I am very grateful. The Union League of Philadelphia is a remarkable building at holding remarkable collections. So it was established in 1862 by supporters of the Republican president, Abraham Lincoln. It's now a private club, but they have amazing things. And uh, Jim Mundy, who was the archivist and now is the official historian of the Union League, has 
introduced me to amazing things over the years. There, uh, they have portraits and weapons and rare manuscripts. It's head spinning in one of the most beautiful buildings that I know. Uh, I, early on, I took a small video crew with me to kind of assess how to shoot the holdings there. And Jim brought out the reins from President Lincoln's hearse when it was driven through Philadelphia. And we all touched those reins and shed a few tears. It was pretty moving stuff. I want to compare here, and I'm talking about the wealth of stuff that has been made available. And in fact, library company, when, when I was getting ready to picture the whole thing, I contacted Sarah Weatherwax, senior curator of graphic arts, and I explained I wanted to get an overview of, of what were the visuals. And I will never forget when I got there, Sarah had two huge work tables covered with stuff, giant scrapbooks, paper dolls of soldiers and classy women, um, tiny uh, collection envelopes that were collector items, uh, just amazing stuff. And it took hours just to go through that initial thing but it really gave me a picture as she said these are the ephemera is what brought the war home to people at home so in contrast i just want to point out the difference in a country where there's been terrible division and violence i a few years into the project i wanted to make sure that i gave the south equal time because their surgeons and medical personnel were absolutely as dedicated and as meticulous in their record keeping as the northern doctors so i made a plan to visit several sites in the south and i made an appointment with one of the largest libraries and repositories there beautiful facility and i explained that I was working on something about Civil War medicine and anything related to it I would love to see. So we went to the South and they were very kind. And uh, when I got there, they gave me the folder. And when I expressed surprise, I was reminded that the expense of preserving and conserving paper records is considerable. And that in part of a country that was impoverished and worried about starvation in many places. If there were holes in your shoes, holes in the wall, if what you had was paper, that was what you used to stuff in there. So it was pretty sobering. So a lot of our history uh, really remains in fragments from the South. On a more upbeat note, <laughs> Again, Sarah Weatherwax uh, educated me about the advance of the advancement of the science of printing, which was pretty good by the time of the Civil War, and color printing was really in good shape. They were also able to make multiples of things, which had not occurred like some years before. So some of the, you'll see there's a full color, beautiful uh, cover sheet for music that was composed for one of the sanitary fairs, which were huge expos fundraisers in the North that lasted about a week. There was one in Philadelphia in Logan Circle, and they showcased the best of everything, 
that could be offered, music, drama, technology, farming implements. And these uh, events raised literally millions of dollars in Civil War millions of dollars. So I am a sound hound, so I have made a, a number of visits in order to photocopy the original sheet music. And two organizations in particular have amazing holdings in that library company not only has sheet music, they've got tons of song sheets. And the Free Library main branch has a gigantic collection as well. So I went through to find music that had been composed um, with the themes of medicine for hospitals and, of course, funeral dirges, military music, um, in memory of the dead, all kinds of music was composed. And we will be working from those original, well, these copies of the original sheet music of this type. Now I'm going to... Uh, I want you to picture this, a bookcase stuffed to the brim, a six-foot-tall bookcase that is just overflowing with Civil War books. This is my warning picture. If you get involved with the Civil War, it takes over your bookcases and your file cabinets. It's just incredible. I don't know how it happens so quickly, but there is so much fascinating material available, um, and it just... My well, if you could see my office, you would know we're stuffed with stuff, and and I use it, so I'm grateful for it. But just I put out a warning: you're going to have to find a place to put all your other books that are not about the Civil War if you get involved. Well, a, a couple years ago, two years ago, uh, Jim Mundy from the Union League, who had become a friend, he's the historian, asked me to put together a one-hour lecture to be given at the Union League about my project. So I wrote um, a lecture and a multimedia slideshow, which we were able to do, I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, but I had the unbelievable honor of delivering this lecture to 100 people in the Lincoln Memorial Room of the Union League of Philadelphia. Let me tell you, that was just pretty heart-stopping and incredible opportunity. Uh, so it actually became popular. I was invited to give the lecture at all kinds of places. I gave it at the uh, U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center for the annual uh, convention of the Society of Civil War Surgeons. And in a full circle, I was invited to give it at the Parkway Central Library, which is where I found the story. So uh, that was an amazing experience. It was at night on the top floor where there's a glass wall and you can see the lights of the city. And it was, it was pretty special. So since then, I think I've given it to at least 15 different libraries around the area, some Civil War roundtables. It's, uh, it's really gotten around this particular lecture. Uh, I was asked uh, by Rick Anthony, who was an old friend of my dad's and a wonderful person who has a program on a public access cable station in the Radnor Wayne area. It's MLTV mainline network. And Rick has a program called 30 Minutes. And he tried to get me to come be interviewed 
for three years, finally I buckled, and then I wondered why I had given him such a hard time because he was a wonderful interviewer. Um, after I did that, about a week later, I got a call from the station from the general manager, Vince Chelly, and he asked if I, he thought I would be a good person to host an existing program they have called Student Docs. And this program uh, deals with social issue and social justice issue documentaries made by students, mostly college, but some graduating high school seniors as well. So I started to do that last year and um, it's become very interesting. And these students have some powerful documentaries. Now, some of them are short, five or six minutes. And in that case, we show the program in its entirety. Uh, if it's a longer documentary, we show a clip. And then I interview the students and they talk about uh, you know, what, what called them to the particular project, how it changed them working on it. How they, um, how they were able to shoot it. Some of these kids shot it with their smartphones and, and, and edited with free downloaded editing software. Uh, they really were incredibly resourceful and made powerful statements. Uh, we did some shows on opioid addiction programs. We recently did one called 9-12 about the day after 9-11. Um, really fascinating and meaningful stuff. So we also try, since the advent of COVID-19, to encourage anybody who's watching to also document. Because if you have a smartphone and a computer, you basically have TV studio in a bottle. And so the students give hints about, you know, doing it, recommendations for uh, closed captioning and for copyright-free music that you can use with it. So hopefully there is going to be some great documentary work coming out of this situation, or maybe people just want to make something to add to their family archives. It's a great, great way to do it. Well, in addition to working on the documentary, one way to get attention for it and hopefully raise funding is obviously through social media. So I think you may be seeing my website, civilwarrx.com. I believe it is still the largest website on the internet that is devoted to this particular topic. There are more than 1,500 articles. There are uh, videos. There's a, um, it gets a lot of attention. There are medical history timelines. Um, it's been a really nice thing. So I created and curate this website we also do standard uh, social media on Facebook, on uh, Twitter. We're at Civil War Medicine, uh, LinkedIn. So get some very interesting stuff online. And recently, I always wanted to do a book, not necessarily a companion, possibly a standalone book about this subject because it's an amazing subject. Uh, so I sent a synopsis to a very well-regarded literary agency in New York City, and I heard back within five days, and they were very interested. So I am currently working on the proposal. Now, I thought a grant proposal was a lot of work, but let me tell you, a book proposal is 
crazy much more work um, because at least in the in the grant proposals a lot of that volume are forms and information that you get from various institutions from the fiscal sponsor from associated organizations but the book that's text you're on your own so i uh, i i am now on the second or the first rewrite of the draft and they tell me it's pretty standard that it takes three or four rewrites from your original before uh the agents are ready to take it to publishers and I'm pretty intrigued with the process and grateful to have the opportunity. So I can't tell you when it's going to be out on the shelves, but at that time, I will certainly be very loud about it. Uh, I wanted to show you. So once I had all this information, all these piles of files and uh, everything, and, and it really took a few years to assemble four one-hour scripts to tell it was hard to figure out how to tell the story and i i use a very standard industry software called final draft because scripts have much bigger margins than normal text pages which make it easier for the actors to read uh, so it is all drawn from primary source materials and it's linked by a contemporary narrator who kind of introduces in and out and and melds things together i with each one oh the one i'm looking at now a dr william williams Keene, who entered uh army service at age 23 as a surgeon with less than two years of instruction and served again at age 80 in world war one in uniform um, so after the name of each uh, character, I have a, a code and sometimes within parentheses and the code might say M7 pages one to three. That's because these are taken directly. These are the words of the, these people. And sometimes it's just a fragment of, of a letter or a paper that they had written, but it, these are their original words. And I need to be able to go back and look exactly to make sure if there's ever any question about what the original text is, those are my codes for listening. Well, I had hoped to find a diary, a collection of letters, of something that where one or two or even three people were telling the whole story of Civil War medicine the way I now knew that it was. And it's a huge story and it's really um, a Western story. It's America and Europe. It, it had amazing repercussions. So in the end, it took me 80 characters, real people to tell the story the way I really feel it should be told. So I had to create a character ID for the actors because we were gonna have to cast all these people. So what I do or what I did was um, we're going to use Dr. Samuel Gross as an example. And you may have seen the famous Aikens painting, The Gross Clinic. It's huge. Um, and it lives now at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So Dr. Gross uh, grew up in around Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he spoke a Pennsylvania German accent on 
with a, a Pennsylvania German dialect until he learned English at age 15. He became a famous surgeon, author, teacher. He really was a remarkable person. And he had a heavy accent when he spoke in English. So he's kind of an extreme example. So what I did was I created these character IDs because I had to figure out how old is this person who was talking in the documentary series. So I had to go back to their lines because some people's lines were taken from memoirs that they wrote in their 70s or 80s about the experience. Some were taken from letters that they wrote really right at the time. So uh, that would establish what age they are in the documentary series. I had to um, decide where they were born and where they grew up, which were not necessarily the same things to establish their accents. An Alabama accent is very different from a Virginia accent, even though they're both Southern. Um, it had to establish their education level for, you know, however the, the pronunciations might be or the sophistication of it and uh, their personalities. I mean, some people, as I did all this research and sometimes through obituaries, uh, letters from relatives to establish like i mean some people were very funny dr dr king was very funny other people were um really lived with depression so i had to be able to establish who these characters were even though the speaking parts are not that large I wanted it to be as as perfect as possible if it could be so um so I did these character IDs, and then we work with a wonderful casting director, Scott Waz, who owns Philadelphia Post, and he has a national network of voiceover actors. These are all voiceovers, by the way. Uh, 3,500 still images will support the visuals, but um, they're all voiceovers. So I would give Scott a capsule uh, a version of the age and accent required, and then a uh, chunk of lines for each person. Scott puts them out to this amazing network. He goes through all the auditions that come back in, sends me two or three dozen of the most likely. I listen to them blind. And in every single, we've recorded half, 40 of the characters so far. And every single time, the right one just emerged like cream. So it was pretty magical. Uh, then we have cut sheets. So each actor does not get the full script. Each actor only gets their own lines and these are called cut sheets or sides. And this particular screenplay software is set up so you can do that easily. Then, ah, I never expected that I would be uttering these words, but, uh, Excel has become my BFF. <laughs> so, because as you record these things, there are so many factors that you really have to keep track of. And I have to be able to give a very clear picture to the editor, who um, is also the sound engineer, John Anthony, who is just, I got to say, he's a genius. And, and he is so sensitive to sound and visuals that it is a pleasure to work with him. I hope that anybody who's listening who is a creative or an imaginative person 
has the opportunity to work with people who are so great. I always say it's it's like the creative equivalent of flying to be able to work with people, musicians, editors who really are tuned in to what it is that you're working to produce. So we went into the studio, we went into Philadelphia Post and recorded. So it works the, the actor goes into the sound booth or if they're remote, they call it in and we can record them remotely and direct them. Uh, so we recorded everybody in the, uh, in the studio at Philadelphia Post. Then we went to, uh, oh, so some of the actors were terrific. Uh, one, a local actor who's wonderful, you, if you saw The Last Airbender, he was the leader of the North, James DeFonzo, and he portrayed James Ferguson, who was a witness to the Lincoln assassination. Uh, Mr. Ferguson owned a saloon down the street from Ford's Theater, and he happened to be viewing the play that night when the president was murdered. So he was interviewed as a witness after, and James did an amazing job on that. Our youngest actor was Brendan Dahl, who um, was 17 at the time, and he just graduated high school. He's headed to Northwestern University after a gap year helping the New York Theater District dig out from COVID. Uh, and I, he's actually uh, already a playwright. I want to say a, a budding, but I, I think he's had several plays written already. Um, and I think we're going to hear great stuff about Brendan Dahl. We had some wonderful women actors, uh, Nicole Bellick out of LA and Honolulu, which is a great gig, right? Um, and she portrayed a young Southern woman, uh, 16 years old, who was from a very privileged background. And she volunteered aboard a Confederate train from Macon to Atlanta that was filled with wounded, sick, dead and dying soldiers. And it changed her life. And Nicole did an amazing, heart-wrenching rendition of Louise Wigfall's lines. So once we got them all recorded, then we went to the J-Track studio, John Anthony and I, and went through all the recordings. If we had multiple versions, edited, made decisions. So we got them all nice and clean. And I love sound studios. They're so interesting. And sometimes they're filled with guitars or drums or, I don't know, they're just kind of inspirational for me. So since we had all these, um, uh, oh, Dr. Fenton, I'm going to give you a high sign in a few minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. Since we had all this wonderful stuff already recorded, I thought, what can we do? Because it's going to be quite a while before we're ready to release the full documentary series. So I decided to make one-minute pieces. We call them the Voices of Civil War Medicine. And I, every few weeks, I post one on our social media. So I would like to play you a one-minute piece. Uh, this is Walt Whitman, the poet journalist um, out of New York and New Jersey. And he is portrayed by a wonderful actor, Charles Roney, who is local to the Philadelphia area. And these are Walt Whitman's own words as uh, depicted by Mr. Roney. 
Um, can we, can you run that, Will? That, Absolutely, yes. And we'll also share a link to this so that folks can find it and uh, share it with their colleagues. Thank you. <laughs> the released prisoners of war are now coming up from the southern prisons. The site is worse than any site of battlefields or any collections of wounded, even the bloodiest. There was one large boatload of several hundreds brought to Annapolis. And out of the whole number, only three individuals were able to walk from the boat. The rest were carried ashore and laid down. Can those be men? Those little, livid, brown, ash-streaked, monkey-looking dwarfs? Are they really not mummied, dwindled corpses? Wow, thank you. So the last thing I wanna show you before we, we open it up to questions is we, John Anthony and I made a five minute trailer for the documentary series, Civil War Medicine. And you are gonna be able to see this because Dr. Fenton's gonna um, put it up for you. And I wanna point out two things, since you now know more about the mechanics of putting something together. Uh, a lot of the images here did come from library company. And you'll see there's a sequence uh, early on in the trailer where a line of gray clad soldiers moves across the screen and a line of blue clad soldiers moves the other way. Now, these were, Sarah Weatherwax found them for me, paper dolls, so paper dolls of soldiers. So I think there were three to a page, they might've been four. And I asked John if he could, um, copy them and make more so so he reproduced them so it looked like a long line of soldiers uh so those are actually paper dolls and then um at, when anyone speaks there at the bottom is a ribbon with their name their military rank and the flag of which side they're on and those flags those are not contemporary graphics those are taken from the collectible little envelopes that Sarah showed me, um, library company has an amazing collection of them. And so that is where we got those images of the Confederate and the Union flags. Um, so should we roll the trailer? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. I began service and had things that none of the other surgeons had. A set of clinical thermometers, a hypodermic syringe. The hypodermic syringe was in constant requisition. The clinical thermometer was troublesome and was not used very much. a terrible affair. 
It is doubly so when the combatants are composed of one people. The wail of the widow and orphan ascend to heaven from every city and hamlet in the land. And still the cry is for more men. It would be difficult to convey in words a picture of a field hospital where wounded are counted by thousands and whose area is estimated by acres. In the Revolutionary War, 3,000 dead and 4,500 wounded, while in this one battle, 43,000 were wounded or killed. Only those who participated in the struggle can conceive what horrors hovered about this spot, now forever historic in the world's annals. Metropolitan Fair is to be held in the city of New York for the benefit and relief of the sick and wounded. All the resources of the great city of New York are to be invoked. Chicago has just raised nearly $60,000 for army relief. This sum may well save the lives of 10,000 soldiers. Boston and Cincinnati are about doing the same thing. Cannot and should not the city of New York do more for this great national object than Chicago, Cincinnati, or Boston? It was my privilege to make one of the first speeches delivered over Confederate graves north of the Ohio River at Camp Chase, Ohio. 5,000 people came to witness these exercises. A broad-minded federal soldier had inaugurated amongst the people of Columbus the custom of annually strewing flowers on the graves of these men who had died so far from their homes. Over the entrance to the cemetery, a generous hand had written these thrilling words. These were all Americans. Pause it right there. Thank you so much for letting us share that, Carol. Oh, thank you guys for putting up with with a <laughs> an abbreviated visual, but I'm really grateful for everybody coming and sharing. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And we're almost at time, but I do want to offer the option that we could stay just a few minutes later for if you had questions, which you could submit through the Q&A. Carol, are you willing to stick around for just a few more minutes? Oh, absolutely. Well, while I encourage folks to submit via Q&A, um, in fact, we already have one. So um, before we jump into that, I'd like to just start with something that you had mentioned about working on that 70-page <laughs> binder of <laughs> a um, grant application. And I know that um, a lot of people are not fond of uh, working on these big grants, but I'm one of these weird people that have actually found it kind of clarifying in a useful way, uh, simply because it makes you think very clearly and concretely about what your objectives are and how they relate to your audiences. I'm curious to know if you learned anything in going through that process of trying to rally resources. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think it really forces you to establish exactly what it is you want to communicate and to whom, and then how you're going to do it. Who's going to help you? What, what are the techniques that you're going to use? I think it is one of the great clarifying exercises, quite honestly. Um, and and I, I have learned a tremendous amount from that. I mean, I think it really forced me from just being a visionary to being an organized visionary and, and a practical one. So I, as, as tricky as it can be, I, I do recommend the process. So we've had actually several people commending you on this presentation, despite the fact that we faced all these technical challenges. I think it was a very rewarding um, experience. Um, Steve uh, Polsky, for example, says, thank you for your smooth professional presentation, especially given the tech issues that threatened to derail it. The section about uh, determining appropriate accents for voiceovers was particularly fascinating. Well done. Oh, thanks, Stephen. <laughs> Uh, David Kent asks, what is your time frame for completing the documentary series? Ah, uh, John Anthony and I have estimated that we have about 10 months of work in, and it is completely predicated on funding. It's one of those things, I mean, anybody who's worked with grant funding on a big project, it's like you go out and you raise money and you get to a certain point, and then you have to do it again. So, uh, so it is really dependent upon raising the rest of the funds uh but it I, i'm told that it gets easier because we are pretty far along so um and there's you know plenty to show for it so um i'm really hoping by the end of next year that that we will be broadcasting that's fantastic so end of 2021 is our possibility then right a, a distinct possibility with prayer <laughs> well, not above that. Uh, some, 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 some more commendations. Um, Abe Klebanoff says, Carol's always so articulate and fun to listen to. I always learn new things. Oh, hi, Abby. Thank you. <laughs> Abby. <laughs> Sorry, Abby. <laughs> She's an amazing librarian. She's the head librarian at FUMO. And boy, has she helped me along. And especially in times of difficult internet I have gone to the library, which <laughs> clearly would have been great today. But... Thank you for joining us, Abby. And Antoinette Levitt Antoinette also says that this was an excellent presentation. Oh, thanks, Antoinette. I, I, I hope to bring more because it's such a fascinating subject. And I think in its own way, it's really uplifting. I mean, this is how Americans met a hideous challenge, a four-year epidemic of disease and violence. And yeah. the Americans brought their best. And here we are on the other side of that particular one. But it's it was, you know, people working through a fog of grief and exhibiting noble behavior. So I think it's really inspirational in that way. Inspirational and timely. Thank you for... for for bringing it full circle for us, Carol. Um, this was a wonderful presentation and I can assure all of you that tuned in that we will make the PowerPoint, which I know that Carol uh, labored over and did a fantastic job with available to all of you, uh, as well as any links that we can collect for you. Um, I know that I did my best to sort of foreground resources as Carol was speaking, but uh, uh, inevitably I missed things. So Carol and I will strategize 
over the next couple of days to make sure that you're fully equipped to continue learning. And uh, certainly, as always, I invite you to join for next week's. Uh, we will uh, be inviting Ariel Ron, who's going to be talking about not just a brand new book, but a book that's like not even on the shelves yet. It's not due until November. So this is not even a book talk. It's like a book preview. Uh, fantastic new book that's coming out of John, Johns Hopkins University Press called Grassroots Leviathan, Agricultural Reform in the Rural North in the Slaveholding Republic. So with that, thank you all for joining, but thank you in particular, Carol, for weathering all of the technical issues that we had in delivering a fabulous presentation. Thank, thank you for helping me through that, Will. That was, uh, and I'm gonna look forward to my next opportunity. Thank you so much, everyone. Stay safe, stay strong, please wear your mask. Take care of all.